welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. I'm wondering what your mood is like this morning, JF. How are you feeling this morning? I'm in a fantastic mood. I can't wait to talk about this story. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. I, I couldn't tell. No, no, I'm in a fantastic mood. I'm a little on edge because I'm doing that panel tonight. But other oh, okay. than that, I feel great. And I love Robert Eggman. You're in tearing high spirits. I'm in, I'm in a bad mood this morning, actually. I'm just realizing talking to you. I'm in a shitty mood. Oh, so you were projecting. Wanna... You were projecting. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And I don't want to bring you down because that's that sucks, you know, hanging around with like a negative person and you can have the best mood and then after an hour of talking to them, you feel like weighted down with their, their dysphoria. Yeah. I don't want to do that to you. That's so... fine. Don't worry about me. I'll be okay. <laughs> Well, it seems somehow appropriate for me to be in a bad mood talking about Robert Aikman because Robert Aikman is a master of esoteric bad moods, like bad moods you didn't know existed. Yeah. And and he has that crazy ability to put the sickness in you. You know, people will talk about uh, it's a cliché of saying like, "Oh, you know, don't read this book before bed." And I've never, almost never read a book that actually got under my skin and robbed me of sleep. But fucking Robert Aikman did that this week. I read pages from a young girl's journal, and I didn't even finish it. It's sort of like there's a point in a Robert Aikman story where somehow you realize you've gone off the path some ways back. And you didn't know it at the time, but now you know, like, oh, wait, there's something wrong so I'd, I'd reached that point, but I hadn't quite hit the denouement where it all clicks into focus. And I had all these weird dreams where you're kind of like hovering between wakefulness and sleep. All these strange imaginings of what was happening to that girl. And then when I read the story, it was pretty fucked up, but it wasn't, I guess it was at least more definite yeah. than what I was imagining. But like the, the mood of the story just got into me. In a way that's kind of, I don't know, that like doesn't happen that often with, I mean, most stories that are allegedly spooky, most ghost stories, I don't find scary at all. They all remind me of monster horror, chiller theater. Yeah. SCTV, you know, like, oh, that's some real scary stuff, kids. And then, you know, it's not. Yeah. But this is some real scary stuff right here. Well, the, the the horror is never really defined, which makes it more insidious and pervasive in a weird way. And I, he's a master of incremental horror, right? Of like just yeah. turning the dial ever so slowly, so that you're like the frog in the in the pot that doesn't know it's boiling till the water hits. That's true. You know? And his characters are in the same predicament. So yeah, he's <laughs> he's well, just a little bit of just. I mean, a lot of people aren't going to know who the hell we're talking about. Robert Aikman right. remains an unknown quantity in like mainstream literary culture. He's he was born in London, 1914, died in 1981, and he wrote a total of 48 short stories. That's it. And I think there were a couple of novellas that were published posthumously. 
An autobiography. Um, an autobiography, correct. Oh, and this I found particularly interesting from looking up some stuff on him. An unpublished philosophical manuscript of more than 1,000 pages in length. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. And apparently there's a Robert Aikman collection somewhere in England, like his papers have been deposited in some institution, and you can go and look at it, but it's unpublished. Well, that's interesting. I know, right? I hope it's not a, in there. I hope it's not as much of a, a downer as uh, Poe's philosophical treatise. Have you heard of it? No. Oh. Anyways, has it been published? Yeah, it's. I think it's been published. I read an article about it, and it turns out to be like dreary idealist <laughs> drivel. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I. Yeah, I'd love to know what Robert Aikman's metaphysics were, <laughs> or his ethics, for that matter. I'd love to read his philosophical work. He's just from reading stuff online. I know that he. Um, believed in the supernatural he was a member of the society for psychical research and also the ghost club in london oh that's um, interesting he, he apparently knew quite a bit about like occultism yeah and yet you don't see it in the stories there's no explicit reference to the occult or even the supernatural in his stories mm, it's like his yeah. stories take place in a world where the idea of the supernatural hasn't occurred to anyone but he's using figures from folklore. Like you can tell, like uh, Ringing the Changes, one of his best stories, in my opinion, is a zombie story. But he never has the word zombie come up, nor does he right. does he even fall for the like, kind of the tropes by which you would describe a zombie or what a zombie looks like. You have to figure out that it's a zombie story. It's an archaeological and it's fiction. And it's the same thing with pages from a young girl's journal. It's, it's actually a, a vampire story, yeah. kind of, but... But it's the same thing. Never once does he use the word vampire and you have to piece it together. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, Archaeological story. Yeah, well, there's an, there's an archaeology of folklore going on in his work where instead of starting at the top and going, I'm going to write a vampire story, he goes, okay, this is what people think vampires are. I'm going to try to write a story about the phenomenon which would give rise to this idea of what a vampire is. So he's going back underneath to try yeah. to like reinvent what something is or kind of show it for how it would appear to someone who doesn't have all of that semiotic baggage that we'd project onto a phenomenon. Oh, yeah. it's a ghost. So it comes with all these like chains and sheets and all that. He's just taking that, <laughs> stripping all that stuff away and just giving us kind of the raw. And I, I feel a kinship to that because, well, I have one feature film right now in development hell where it will probably remain. My script is a, um, a permanent resident of the hospice at this point <laughs> and i didn't know Aikman when i wrote it but what i wanted to do so i wanted to write a werewolf story but instead of writing a werewolf story i wanted to write a story about the phenomenon that would give rise to the werewolf myth right so that's what i did and there's something Aikman-esque about the results now i'm not comparing myself to him but at least in terms of how the the subject is treated I found when I found Eichmann, I found like that's what I was trying to do. That's what mm. that's interesting to me. So, yeah, his stories seem to take place in a world where no one has come up with the idea of ghosts. They don't mention ghosts. Yeah. They don't theorize, oh, is that a ghost? They just experience what the reader recognizes as potentially a ghost. But it's never answered. So you're left just with this strange openness, this strange uh, ambiguity which really makes the story in the end. That's what his fiction is about. He called his stories strange stories. 
which I like. It's a term I like. Not weird stories, but strange stories. Because they're, they're just always at the borderline between the mundane and the fantastic. And they never leave that kind of liminal zone. In a way, they're kind of banal. And yet, in another sense, they're just rife with, like, eldritch horror. But yeah. it's, it's a weird effect. I mean, Neil Gaiman put it best. He said, reading Robert Aikman is like watching a magician work. And very often, I'm not even sure what the trick was. All I know is that he did it beautifully. Yes, the key vanished, but I don't know if he was holding a key in his hand to begin with, which is very mm, yeah. much really captured the effect. It's like the magician shows you he has no key and you're like, wow. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, he never had a key. What kind of weird fucking magic trick is this? Wait a minute. There is no magician. Wait, where am I? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Why am I in the closet of my bedroom? He's a fantastic, fantastic writer that I recommend strongly to anyone listening to this. And he's not, I guess he's not everyone's cup of tea. Some people don't like his stories. Um, a lot of weird aficionados aren't big fans. But if you dig it, you'll you'll dig it deep. Have you gone as far as figuring out what people don't like about his stories who don't like them? Well, I've only met like or interacted with or even read a handful of people who knew him at all. I haven't done extensive research. I'm not sure. There's probably a journal of Eichmann studies somewhere, although I doubt it. But I know that Thomas Ligotti doesn't like him. Like this really? is yeah. yeah. <laughs> so narcissism of small differences. Well, that's yeah. That's a, it's probably a good example of it because my understanding is that he found out about Eichmann because people kept writing him saying, "Oh, have you read Robert Eichmann? He's very similar to you." So then he he's, he's like, "For the last fucking time, I have not read Robert Eichmann." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some... I mean, how could you how could you enjoy somebody who constantly people are like, hey, you're just like him. Yeah. Because if you're an artist, you don't want to be just like anybody. Yeah, and he and he's not. Yeah, I don't Michael. I don't I don't blame Ligotti for not liking Aikman. Yeah. Aikman, however you pronounce his name. Yeah. So he uh he read some and then he reported that uh in his opinion the the stories were just like um well concealed cliches, and that's pretty much all there was to it. I guess he could see, oh, that's a ghost, that's a vampire, that's a zombie, and he was like, bleh. Actually, there's a great line, I'm not going to be able to find it, there's a great line in The Hospice, something like that crises are met with cliches. Yes, which is so true. It is, it's totally true, and there are cliches, there are abounding cliches, in these stories, but the cliches themselves are part of the trick, part of the what makes these stories sinister. Because they are the banal reactions in the face of not just a crisis, but crises that are not understandable. But beyond that, beyond the idea that they're reactions to crises, also the banal is the crisis often in these stories. Like, in a way that reminds me of David Lynch. You know, actually, the whole time I'm reading Aikman, uh, I'm always thinking of David Lynch because the way he describes things. Like, for example, when... What's the protagonist's name? Maybury. Maybury. When Maybury's car is pulling up to the hospice. And the description of everything leading up to there, he's gotten lost in his car, and he finds himself in increasingly remote countryside or it's a suburb but it feels like a suburb that maybe was never fully developed and 
the lights aren't very bright and he's it's getting darker and darker and I'm imagining all of those scenes in Twin Peaks season three, which show a dark, increasingly vague countryside passing under the headlights of a car. It's always this point of view shot of a car rolling through darkness. And always the things that loom up in the headlights, they're not scary things. They're not vampires or whatever. It's just like broken pavement and bushes and like a, a bit of industrial fencing. It's always this really banal stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that Aikman is describing. Also, another story from the same collection, Cold Hand in Mine, the first story, which is called The Swords. That's a story that takes place in kind of shabby hotels and a shabby vacant lot where a tiny shabby little circus has been set up and there are no customers and all of these things are just like banal and sort of a little bit depressing but these things are always lit up in this weird way sort of the way they are in a David Lynch film where their banality is just creepy as hell yeah and then he'll spring something on you a little image, a little moment that tells you that you're off the path, as you say. In fact, yeah, the hospice, the story we're, we're going to be discussing today, I think it's the perfect story to introduce people to Robert Aikman because it just has all the makings of a great Robert Aikman story. What all the stories do metaphorically, it kind of does literally. It's about a guy who's a salesman, a kind of businessman in England who's lost somewhere in the Midlands. And he took a wrong turn or he followed some guy's advice at the office and he got lost. So he's trying to find his way back and he's running out of gas. It's a classic ghost story setup, right? It's nighttime. It's dark. It's a suburb, but it's one of those English suburbs. It's more like a state. So he's just, it's just forest everywhere. And occasionally he'll see a house or something. And then he has no idea where he is. And then he ends up going to this hospice, this hotel in the middle of nowhere uh, where things get really, really weird. And so I was reminded, in fact, there's actually a, an explicit sign that would align his text with uh, Dante's Inferno. In the very beginning, Mabry, he's lost, he's worried. He stops his car to like read the street signs or figure out where he is. He gets out and he's walking around and he suddenly is attacked by a cat. He thinks it's a cat. An animal attacks him and bites his leg. And I was reminded of the famous opening from Dante's Inferno. Midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood. How shall I say what wood that was? I never saw so drear, so rank, so arduous a wilderness. Its very memory gives shape to fear. And then he, the narrator in the poem sees a hill and makes for the hill in the distance, presumably to get a sense of his surroundings. And then he gets to the foot of the hill and he writes, And lo, almost at the beginning of the rise, I faced a spotty leopard, all tremor and flow and gaudy pelt. And it would not pass, but stood so blocking my every turn, that time and again I was on the verge of turning back to the wood. So if we just entertain this correspondence for a second, we can read the hospice as a kind of rewrite or a reimagining of, of Dante's Inferno, which I think is a, a fruitful interpretive path to take when you think about what happens at the hospice and what's going on there. The difference being, of course, that Dante, when he sees the leopard, the leopard blocks his path, but it won't let him through. Whereas in this case, the leopard bites him. And 
we get the, immediately the sense that this Maybury dude is a bit of a loser and he's not up to the challenge he's facing. He's not up to what he's, <laughs> yeah, he's not, well, he's not equipped to face what he's about to face, which is really the case in the story. This guy is not an intelligent or resourceful dude. He's like the prototypical British salesman, traveling salesman with his wife and his family and his little life and his he has doesn't seem to have any real interests or any real stake in anything except his job. All of the references to other people are always people at the office and what this or that person told him. His network of meaning seems really kind of like narrow. And he ends up at this hospice and then things take a very slow, strange turn. start talking about the hospice as such let me ask you a question is there a point in the story where you can say looking back on it this is where Mabry started to go wrong this is where he's off the track well I think he starts off the track because he didn't follow the right directions (laughs) so I think he's already (laughs) lost like literally at the beginning of the story but I think the moment where we know that he's off the path in a major way is when he goes into the hospice and then he's invited to have dinner with the residents and he goes into this big dining room and most of the people are seated at a single long table and they're older people dressed in formal attire and they're just eating copious amounts of food and when he's leaving that dining room he notices that one of the guests at least is chained to the table yeah I think that's the moment where we know there's something very There's wrong. Definitely something but, wrong. But we've already been fed a lot at that point to know that we're we're in a strange world. Um, yeah. Just the way that people act in the hospice, just their strange Lynchian behavior, tells us that uh, not all is well, right? When I went back to read it a second time, I realized you're quite right. He's gone wrong almost from the very beginning. The very beginning, the first paragraph is a description of how he takes some bad advice. The second paragraph is a description of his confusion. And then the third paragraph, we're still on the first page. It says, Maybury looked at his watch. He had been driving for hours. By rights, he should have been more than halfway home, considerably more. Even the dashboard light seemed feebler than usual. But by it, Maybury saw that soon he would be out of petrol. His mind had not been on that particular matter of petrol. And I'm reading this, I'm like, God, it's sort of like descriptions that people have of UFO encounters, Mm. of, you know, abductions. Missing time, yeah. Missing time, weird shit happening with the lights, lights dimming. And I'm not an expert in fairy lore, but I wonder if there are similar kind of structural aspects to encounters with otherworldly beings kind of going back into more kind of traditional cultures. Mm-hmm. Lost time, certainly. Feasts uh, also. people, And feasts, yes, yeah. that's right. You, that's a good point. In folklore, often the, the wanderer will come upon a, a fairy feast in the woods, and, and because they're lost and hungry, they'll be drawn to the feast to join in, and then, of course, they get taken into fairy. Um, 
And and the whole thing is you should never eat the food that you're offered in Ferry because no. once you do, they have a claim on you. Exactly. And that's exactly what he does. He eats that huge bowl of soup. And uh, and, and not, only, not only is it food, but, I mean, okay, we're sort of talking about this in a nonlinear way, but in a way, the linear storytelling doesn't matter at all. It's very much like a dream. In fact, I had a thought before we even started that I would start by saying, hey, Jeff, I had this really weird dream, and then I would just tell you the plot of the hospice. <laughs> um, because it, if I told you I had this really weird dream, and then I just told you all the things that happened in the story, you wouldn't think anything of it. it. Everything transpires as in a dream. And one of the many things that's odd is, number one, it's a sumptuous place. But as he pulls up, he sees all this broken... Concrete, again, it, the description is very reminiscent of things that Lynch shows you of uh, sad, forlorn, abandoned places in the back of nowhere. But then he goes inside and everything is just richly appointed. There are lush wall hangings and gigantic uh, lamps and lampshades of an old-fashioned style. Everything's wood-paneled. All of the other guests are dressed in finery, like really high-quality clothes, even though the guests themselves often seem decrepit, like drooling, nodding, senile, shrunken beings. But then the food is like, he says something like, of unobtainable quality, like just um, the best imaginable quality of food. And yet it's also repellent because he's being almost force-fed. Like a, they bring out... A, a bowl of soup that, and this is a particularly good detail, the bowl itself reminds Maybury of like plates that you would give a baby yeah. where you would have like maybe the baby's name written around the edge of the plate, but instead it just says the hospice. Yeah. And the bowl is freaking huge. It's like a trough of soup. And he, when he goes in, he's really hungry. He's eating the soup and eating the soup. And by the time he gets to the bottom of the bowl, it's like, oh, okay, I'm <laughs> starting to slow down. And the, and there's a woman who's especially assigned to bring him food. And it seems to be really important to her that he keep eating and he that he eat a lot. And she brings out a mountain of turkey. And oh, it's before a, the, that, she brings out, she whispers in his ear, it's turkey tonight. <laughs> like he's a baby, but he's already facing this big plate of food. And then the turkey comes. It's like one thing after another. And everyone else in yeah. the room is just like gorging themselves, just eating and eating and eating. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? And uh, <laughs> so he's not hungry. Like, after like he's already not hungry by the time the turkey comes out. Yeah, right. In fact, after and the And then soup, he tries to kind yeah. of get out. He's like, whoa, that's kind of a lot of food. And the woman who's serving him becomes like kind of aggressive yeah. about it. First, she's like, well, that's not for you to say that you're not hungry. Right. And then he has to, at a certain point, he gets tired. He just stands up. He's like, I I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Well, and she picks up the plate and just hurls it <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> I love that detail. And then when she brings him coffee afterwards, she's back to normal. She just serves him his coffee. It's it's this weird little detail where she just looks at him and then quietly just smashes the plate on the ground or at least throws it onto the carpet. And he's completely taken aback because he's wondering, like, where the hell am I? And that's where he gets up to leave the dining room and sees that one of the guests is chained. And then he goes back to the lobby. And then at this point, he all he wants is to go home. He knows that his wife is worried. He's out of gas. He has to get home. And yet, <laughs> Faulkner, who's the, the manager of the, of the hospice, just gives him the weirdest hard time. Like, like everything. He, so he wants, a, <laughs> he wants to 
to get some gas in his car. So he's asking Faulkner, the, the manager, well, where's the nearest petrol station? And the manager says, oh, I'm sorry. that There's nothing like that around. I don't remember exactly what it is. But in the end, Faulkner offers to s- siphon some gas from their car, the hotel car, into his car. And he's like... Which is a bizarre thing to suggest. Because yeah, you, know? <laughs> like, you have to suck it out with a with a hose. I know just the image that comes... Cause he, and Eichmann actually observes like... He says uh, Mabry knew of that such a thing was possible, but didn't know how to do it. But the reader will probably know that it involves like with your mouth sucking the gas out of your car and then putting it in the other one. Uh, it's like the most low down shit. And yeah. Faulkner is this immaculately turned out guy in a velvet smoking jacket. Right, right. And so this mental image of him performing this degrading operation in order to accommodate a guest. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's so weird. Uh, and then, so then he, they go out and it, by this point, it's super dark. There are no lights outside. He can't see a thing. And he's making his way back to his car with Faulkner beside him to start his car and to drive it around the back where the hotel vehicles are. And then he can't start his car. His car won't start. And he's getting angry and Faulkner then goes to get some help. Remember that scene? Faulkner's like, oh, yeah. I, I'll go get so-and-so. I don't remember his name, but... Chromie. Chromie. Yeah, I'll go get Chromie. He's good at this sort of thing. He'll start your car. So he goes back and he, he returns with what turns out to be a kind of ogre. Like a huge... Yeah, the shambling... Yeah. <laughs> this, this large sham, shambling man that... Maybury never gets a good look at him. Never gets to see his face. And he sits in the car beside him. And then he all he's doing is like just tugging on the ignition and like trying to get it to go. And, and, and he's being rough with the car. And at, at some point, maybe he's like, whoa, whoa, not so hard, not so hard. And then finally the car starts. And then this ogre Chromie just quietly lumbers back to the to the hotel. <laughs> but that at that moment, Faulkner's like, oh, sir, I forgot. I'm so sorry about this. But I just remembered that the hotel car uses diesel. <laughs> <laughs> And Mabry's just furious, but too polite to say anything. So at that point, he has no choice but to spend the night at the hospice. And then things get start to get really strange at that point. It's funny, you know, in trying to say what happens in this story, the danger is that it becomes just as boring as when somebody tries to tell you their dream. Because, you know, the dream is just a mound of loosely connected or perhaps entirely unconnected detail that doesn't obey a usual narrative logic where first one thing happens and then another thing happens but the second thing that happens happens as a result of the first and there's a sense of a pattern that builds from one event to another towards some kind of conclusion whereas dreams you know things happen but not as consequence of one another or the or sometimes they do happen as a consequence of one another, but the causality is so strange or elusive that if you're trying to tell somebody about the stuff that happened in your dream, it's just really boring because there's no narrative shape to it. And yet, for you, the dreamer, it had a tremendously powerful, compelling feeling. And this is the feeling I got reading these stories, this tremendously powerful, compelling feeling of narrative logic that nevertheless when I try to put it in words what's really going on in this story just eludes me so I mean we can put it very briefly what happens then is that okay he has to stay the night and then Faulkner's like well everybody uh, shares a room here and it turns out everybody who's there they're there all the time so it's not really a hotel 
Right. And then he has to share a room with this guy. What's his name? Bannard. This really strange guy who he has the strangest, most inconsequential conversations with. But he has to share a room with this guy. He has to wear Bannard's pajama. Yeah, which is like many sizes too small. Yeah. And the room is like extremely overheated. At one point, Bannard gets up and then he comes back and it and Mayberry can't tell if it's the same guy or not. And when Bannard's gone, Mayberry tries to turn on the light, but it doesn't work. He tries to find a window and realizes there are no windows. There are just draperies hung on the wall. He finds he can't leave the room. He can't operate the door and then Bannard returns and was like well what you could leave anytime you want and it's just sort of this pile up of strange incident the cumulative effect of which is a kind of claustrophobia you can feel Maybury the walls closing in on him the feeling of being like tight in the chest short of breath being suffocated that feeling is so distinct to me reading it it's like having a dream like that yeah <laughs> but i'm reading it in a story it really is the strangest effect uh, also uh, this is the magic tr- this to me is like getting back to what neil gaiman said this is like a magic trick like how in prose and linear prose because i mean writing enforces linearity on your thoughts you can only write in one direction right but how in linear prose can you conjure up so indelibly the nonlinear mood of a dream. Right. I don't know how he does it. He does it somehow. He does. And he's he's a master of, of that exact effect. You skipped an important detail. When Bannard's gone, so Bannard, his roommate, uh, leaves. They, they finally, he, he, they're both lying down in the dark. And then Mabry hears Bannard kind of shuffle about and gets up and leaves the room. And he's gone for a long time. But Mabry, of course, because he doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know he has to share this room with a stranger, he can't fall asleep until Bannard comes back. But Bannard won't come back. And then at some point, he hears these blood-curdling screams. He's not sure if it's a man or a woman. Someone's screaming in the hotel, and it just fucking chills him to the core. And then he's like, I got to get out of here. And that's where he gets up and finds out there's no windows. And the, the, he, the lights do work, but then they go out. The power... Uh, cuts out and then he's freaking out and then he's locked in the room and there's someone screaming like being murdered somewhere in the hotel and sure enough the next morning uh when Mabry gets up and he's he's woken up by Bannard holding like I think a, a plate of like like a whole bunch of toast or something like this huge pre-breakfast because the breakfast is being served downstairs so he has he has to eat again so finally he makes his way back downstairs and then he learns that someone died during the night I found that that move that Eichmann makes when he brings up the scream when he lets us hear and we're assuming that it's the woman he met earlier that's screaming I felt a real chill a real frisson of horror there oh we should probably mention that he after the dinner he meets this beautiful right woman wearing a tragic expression who comes on to him in the most forceful way yeah like she grabs his he's hand like, oh, and I puts like, it on her he, breast yeah he's like oh I like your dress she's like touch it Touch it! Touch it! <laughs> and like forces him to put his hand on her breast. Well, I think you, I think you put your finger on there with the missing times. I think this is a story because I was trying to wonder: what is he in hell? Is he in some kind of haunted house? No, he's in fairy. That's what the story's about. Yeah. He's uh, he stumbled upon a group of fairies who have attired themselves in modern 
dress to seduce and bewitch and ensorcel uh, some hapless fucking wanderer um, yeah. who stumbled into their realm. And it's funny because usually in a supernatural story, when you figure out what's going on, it would be kind of a letdown or it kind of exhausts the story. But I find that I just for me, when I when we hit on that, that this is a story about fairies, it just makes it all the more interesting to me. It just like, wow, enriches the whole thing. Um but, you know, fairy is such a great concept because it does have certain, you know, fairy tales, stories that take place in fairy do have certain kind of common features. For example, the, the phenomenon of missing time, which is shared with modern UFO contactee reports, um, the idea of banquets, richly appointed feasts, and often there's music and dancing, but a sense that all of this is in some sense illusory. Uh, and certainly sinister, the idea that on the one hand, this is a beautiful, resplendent place, but also you can't leave. There are all of these kind of tropes of fairy, but then at the same time, fairy is the great example of something where we're like, well, we can call it fairy, but do we really know what that means? You yeah. know, fairy is, it, there's also, the, even though fairy stories have certain kind of characteristics that you see recur again and again, Fairy itself also is just kind of a black box. Yeah. It's, we it's, don't know what fairies are. We don't know what kinds of intelligences they are. are. Did they used to be people? Are they maybe not people at all, but they just there's some glamour on them, so they look like people? We don't know what kind of intelligences they are. We don't know what they want. Uh, they want us, but we don't know why. It's just so profoundly confusing. So I find it very useful to think of the other world in Twin Peaks, particularly Twin Peaks season three. To me, it's very useful to think about that as that other world as fairy. Yeah. But that doesn't imply anything about the tone of it or the kinds of entities you meet or the kinds of things that happen to Agent Cooper there. Uh, fairy is a black box. When you present that thesis, when you say, well, Twin Peaks is about fairy, which I agree with, I think that's a very useful interpretive uh, line, is that you plug the story back into not just a tradition of folklore, which has its advantages when you when you can see a text or a film in light of this folkloric tradition of some sort, but it also uh, plugs the fictional story, which seems so dreamlike and so separate from our world it plugs it back into our world because people have experiences yes. like this. I'll tell you my own experience like this. I was 23 and I had long wanted to do a solo backpacking trip in Algonquin Park in Ontario. So this was my chance. I had this little window and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go up there. And I asked the I Ching the night before I was leaving on this trip. So I've set up this whole trip. I'd booked my campsites in the park. It was late September and the I Ching told me, don't go, <laughs> turn back. And one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to consult the I Ching before you're doing something you have no choice but to do. Like, you might as well not consult yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Like, what? That's very true. I mean, I planned the trip. I'd come, I was living in Toronto. I was back in Ottawa. I was at my parents. I was, I'd come for this trip. And all of a sudden, the I Ching is telling me, don't go. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to ignore that. Or I'm going to interpret it differently and th mean, you know. <laughs> so I take off the next day and I drive out to Algonquin Park and I uh, I go to the park office and the guy tells me, uh, he's like, oh, you're going to love this. You're the only person in this provincial park in the next few days. Like, you're the only person here. It was after Labor Day. 
Wow. So, and that was not, I mean, I wanted to be alone, but I don't know. That scared me a bit because what happens when people vacate a provincial park is that, you know, the animals start using the trails as, as like a, a highway. I think we actually, I think I actually told this story already on this podcast, but whatever. Uh, so I set out and then I met a bear. So that's, that's basically the long and short of it is that I encountered a bear towards the end of my first day, just as I was coming to my campsite. Much like Dante, you know, sees that leopard, that bear was just blocking my path, was coming down my way and then stood up and was literally blocking my path. So I turned away and walked a few dozen meters and then consulted the I Ching again. And it told me there was a storm coming. At that point, there were no signs of a storm coming. But I'm like, okay, I saw a bear. I'm scared shitless. I'm alone. I need to get out of here. So I decided to leave the park. So I I had a flashlight and it was getting dark and I'm walking down this trail back to the trailhead. It was like something like 15 kilometers. I had to walk back. So I had to do 30 kilometers in a day. So I'm walking and walking and it's get it's eventually it's pitch black. And I kid you not, there are wolves howling all around me. I, I was just surrounded by these howling wolves and I finally make it back to my car. I'm like, okay, I'm going to sleep in my car because I want to start, I want to do this trip and I'll leave tomorrow morning and I'll, I'll do this for real. So of course I could not fall asleep in the car. So I drive back to the trailhead where there were payphones, and I park my car and then I hear this voice, this kind of monotone voice talking. I'm like, who the fuck is talking? And it turned out to be a radio inside the park office, but it wasn't like a radio station. It was just this repetitive voice of the, like some kind of instruction, a set of instructions about how to park your car and how to book a campsite. It was really creepy. Oh, that's okay. That's, that's Aikman-esque. Yeah. So then I, I find a quarter. I call my girlfriend at the time and I told her what happened. I saw a bear, etc. And I told her to call my mom to tell her I was coming back to Ottawa. So I get back in the car and I'm driving And this is the one and only time in my life where I've experienced road trance. Uh, I was very tired. And and all of a sudden, this uh, fog sets in. And I start to feel that I'm on a dirt road. But, I mean, you know, Ontario, from Ottawa to Algonquin Park, I don't remember the the name of the highway, but it's it's paved. (laughs) You know, it's It's like very much paved all the way through. So I'm on a dirt road. I have no idea how I got on this dirt road. And it's super foggy. And I'm out of gas. And I'm like, oh, I can't shit. be out of gas. I had tons of gas. So I, I, I took this really like this wrong turn. And so I'm driving down this dirt road. I have no idea where I am. I don't have any gas. And then I come upon my headlights illuminate much in a very Lynchian fashion. One of those like upturned bathtubs with like the Virgin Mary in it. And it's just like sitting there in front of me. And I look and then there's a house. What? Yeah. There's, I get out. Wait, you No, you just said one of those upturned bathtubs with the virgin mary like that's just something you, you see commonly oh no it's it's in, in canada you see those especially in french canada so people will take an old clawfoot bathtub and set it up as a kind of like frame and make put the virgin mary in it and it's like a shrine right like imagine if it's like or on like do you turn the bathtub upside down so it's you like turn a... it up no no you turn it up so it's like uh vertically up like oh. uh, and, and you'd bury it halfway down it, it forms like a dome oh kind of like, i get it so it's like a little niche like a niche or an alcove ah, and in it. there okay. you, oh, put, okay. you put the the virgin mary so and behind the virgin mary was this house and there were people in the garage partying it was like two in the morning 
And I went up and asked them where I was and they pointed me back. And I found my way back to a gas station just in time. And then the storm that the I Ching predicted set in and it took me another couple hours to get home because I had to drive at like 30 kilometers an hour on the highway. But all this to say that, yeah, when I recount that, it feels, it sounds like a dream, but this really happened. There's something about Eichmann's style of storytelling and especially about the hospice, which I think, again, like we were saying in the, on well, we were, one of our discussions recently on Kubrick is that to depict life as a dream, you're actually capturing something about real life that naturalistic storytelling tends to overlook or not be able to communicate or express. Is it possible to verbalize what that thing is? As a Humean, as a fan of David Hume, I see it as the fact that our idea of this ironclad causality that can be deduced somehow from some notion we have of how the world functions is false. And in fact, that we just derive our idea of one thing following another from our habit of observing the way things go. And then we think we have a handle on how things go in the abstract. But the minute you leave the areas where your habits are confirmed or affirmed, you, you see that the world actually works in a very mysterious way. And that, um, that it's never by a process of deduction that we understand how things happen in the world. But by observing the way things have gone, we predict how things will go. But the way things have gone has no bearing on the way things go in the abstract. So when you're in a dreamlike situation, you're actually much closer to the real than when you're in your habitual environment where all of your assumptions about how things work are bear out because that's the illusion that's a very carefully constructed illusion it's almost literally a mise-en-scene a staging of reality that we call society or civilization we set up certain things in certain ways so that certain outcomes follow certain processes and then we think that we have a handle on how things work in general but all we have to do is leave those carefully constructed stages to realize that life is actually much weirder and that events follow one another following logics that we wouldn't think could actually apply. Dream logics, surreal logics, that the ways that, that I don't know, in such a way that a dreamlike story expresses the nature of reality much better than a naturalistic, logical, coherent narrative. I'm thinking about a word that we throw around quite a bit, weird, which you just used to characterize the kind of reality that we're after, that we're trying to describe. I think about the etymological root of the word weird, W-Y-R-D, where weird, well, I don't know. How do you pronounce that? Weird? Do you just say it the same way? I don't know. But that word, meaning fate, in a kind of archaic version of English, an older English, much of what makes weird reality weird is fate, or uh, maybe fate's the wrong word, the foreordained, the fated the literally ominous, that which satisfies or fulfills an omen, that seems to me to be a very fundamental aspect of the way the world is that we have systematically pushed off stage because 
you know, the understanding of the modern subject is above all a self-willing subject. It's somebody who can make decisions about what he or she is going to do and, and certain predictable consequences can follow from those decisions. This way of thinking reaches a kind of pathological extreme with people who refuse to acknowledge that anything can happen to you that you're not 100% on the hook for. So this can manifest as unsympathetic people saying that you know poor people deserve to be poor, that in some way they willed this on themselves. But, you know, there is this strange meeting of chance and fate. The two words aren't necessarily too far apart. Where something happens to you that falls outside of the realm of things you intend and that you might experience very much as like a chance thing, like the chance meeting of a bear on a path, for example. Um, the various contingencies and chances that you encountered in that story. But the funny thing is that there's also a way in which those things manifest always as just random chance occasions, things that just befall you for no reason that you can ascertain, and yet feel inevitable. And part of the way they announce themselves in our experience is this strange combination of whimsy or just like it just happens randomness yeah randomness yeah and a feeling like of course this was going to happen and like the moment it happens you have this strange feeling of it simultaneously being just this peculiar random happenstance and also something that you could never have outrun even if you tried and the fact that you consulted the I Ching twice and both times the I Ching's reading was satisfied or, or realized in your experience just adds to that kind of flavor of the weird w-y-r-d weird when you do divination you'll call up a sign and it's always an abstract sign you know i mean there is no card in the tarot deck that shows a bear standing in your way for instance right i know you didn't use the tarot but whatever um there's no line in the I Ching that says anything about bears no right no bears but <laughs> and yet, at the same time, part of what I think of as diviner's time, you know, Joshua Ramey, who we've had on this show, talks about... The diviner's cause, uh, he calls it. Yes, the yeah. divining cause. And I like to think that with that cause comes a certain temporality. In fact, that's the thing I'm writing right now for this little conference we have in Bloomington coming up. And within that temporality, there's this strange sense that things repeat and they repeat exactly so there's always a sort of feeling like you know you do divination you read the I Ching, you do the tarot and you get a sign you get an oracle an omen and you have no way of knowing how that omen is going to be borne out in your real life but if you have any experience doing divination you know that when it happens there will be absolutely no question that this is the thing that that card or that line of the I Ching was telling me about. And so the experience of it, even though there's difference, right? You know, the card you pull from the tarot might be the fool, but its realization in your world might be a bear standing in front of you or a virgin in a bathtub or whatever. But when you encounter the fulfillment of the omen, you 
know that feeling of like a key clicking in a lock that feeling of fit of resonance you know i got the symbol now here's the resonance in real life is a feeling of perfect repetition it's like ping pong and yet it's repetition indifference or difference in repetition that's the weird i i'm not expressing this well i better figure out how to express it so i can write the stupid paper but like the point is that to me is the the feeling of diviner's time it's a special feeling and i gotta figure that at some point in human history or at least the history of the west a history of the culture that we live in that everyday experience would have been much closer to that feeling that would have been everyday reality that would have been the stuff of stories and not what we are pleased to call realism well we now can, we can just trace we can we can see that if you read even arthurian romances take place entirely in that time yeah in that other time you know Deleuze wrote the book about that difference in repetition is exactly about that his two concepts of time might be useful at some point it's worth looking into even though Deleuze is notoriously difficult to read and it's hard to know exactly what he's talking about until you've read it many times and even then I don't even know. Maybe this is just my own ideas at this point. But uh, there's Kronos, which is the normal time, the kind of causal, deep cause time that we want to believe obtains uh, because it gives us control and it, like, it gives us the sense that we have a handle on, on the world. And then there's Aeon, this other type of time that's transversal and cuts through it. And Aeon is, is nonlinear in the sense that it's that event of repetition, which always repeats but never, uh, but never reproduces the same thing. And you can see it just by listening to a song. We were talking about rhythm the other day. That's exactly what a song is doing. Uh, one example that is cites in his book is the idea of the chorus or the refrain, the recurrent mm -hmm. refrain in a song. It's always the same, but it's always different in light of what has come before, right? Yeah, So you have right. first verse, refrain. Second verse, refrain sounds different now because it's reflecting on what has been said in the first, in the second verse third verse or bridge mm -hmm. or whatever. So there's this repetition, which is an expression. By virtue of its repetition, it expresses difference or newness. Yes. Uh, another one yes. of his examples is the idea of the festival. The festival recurs at the same time every year, but its essence is precisely the newness it brings all the time. So yep. whenever the festival's coming, people feel anything could happen, even though we know it's the same festival that comes up every year. But yeah. the structure of the festival is such that it's just a space for, in which newness occurs, but in the form of a repetition over time, of a tradition. So these are good, strong examples of this, of how even in our manicured world, we still have cultural technologies around us where if you look, you will find this happening, this kind of magical event happening. Um, the idea of a revolution, right? Mm -hmm. The stodgy conservative will say, well, every, every revolution is the same, right? Every time people revolt, you find the kind of like structural causes that result in a people rising up against their superiors. And you have, oh, and now I understand structurally how revolutions work, right? And the revolutions always fail because the revolutionaries always turn into the new authoritarians, the new authority, yeah, the new authority yeah. and then there's a reversal and blah, blah, blah. But that misses the newness of each revolution, the newness that each revolution occasions. A revolution is always the intrusion of something totally new into the world. And it's only a kind of passive mind that would abstract or, or the kind of dispel or banish the newness and just see the recurring pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And from this point of view, Eggman's writing isn't fantastic fiction at all. It's realism. 
but it's realism that is true to this different kind of time that we systematically push off to one side or this experience within that temporality that we push off to one side. This reminds me of a book that's weird in its own way. It's a book called An American Dream by Norman Mailer. This is a book, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it, but suffice it to say, it reads like a Roman noir, it reads like a hard-boiled James Elroy-esque tale of somebody who's killed his wife and he's on the run and he's trying to outsmart gangsters and cops and blah, blah, blah. But it's actually a book that tries to and succeeds in inhabiting the worldview of somebody who has, in a sense, gone mad, but as somebody who's living in a world of magic, like a world of magical links, magical synchronicities, magical portents and signs. And after killing his wife, he throws himself headlong into this world and he describes engaging in psychic combat with people in a nightclub and all of the stuff which you know this book came out in what the mid-60s like 64 65 something like that and the kind of partisan review ask literary critics the new york intelligentsia who were, you know, trying to make something of this novel, were reading, you know, these passages in which this magical reality is the only reality that the character lives in. And they assume that Mailer is being clever and writerly and making some kind of point, right? But that it's an attempt to depart from realism. And Mailer, in one particularly well-known interview with Laura Adams, says, no, actually... Uh, quote, to me, it was a realistic book, but a realistic book at a place where extraordinary things are happening. I believe the experience of extraordinary people in extraordinary situations is not like our ordinary realistic experience at all. So, you know, it's a different kind of realism. It's a realism that is faithful to what he calls like extraordinary people in extraordinary situations. But what you're saying, it seems, is that these are not even that extraordinary situations. That what's extraordinary is the effort it takes to push them off to one side. That the real world is actually the strange world that Eggman is writing about. It's not, it's, it's, it's not what we are pleased to call reality at all. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.